From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM, coming to you via Zoom as we have for the last 13 months or so. We've got the whole crew here, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and this is Cade Massey. We will talk first, as we have been talking first, about COVID-19, and then we'll slip into a couple of open segments on all matter sports. We end up with an interview in the fourth quarter, very Masters golf relevant, have Scott Fawcett talking about golf strategy. He is friend and advisor to the runner-up there this past weekend. Great conversation with Scott at the end of the show. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. It's Monday afternoon as we record this. As ever, I'm curious what has caught your eye in the world of COVID-19. It feels to me like there's lots to talk about. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought I would just jump in. There's such great news about COVID, which you've had the chance to share with the vaccines. Um, just to review, it really works and it and and it really works. So what's what's the what's the but? Well, the but is um, what what people like to talk about variants and um, we've talked about that as well, but there's a number of variants out there that um, that weren't built for the original vaccine, which they call the wild type in the literature, um, just what's naturally occurred first. The two main ones are the South African and the British variant. The British variant is, is finally starting to make major inroads in the U.S., and the British variant is obviously taking over almost all of Europe. Um, the South African one is starting to make its presence known. It seems to not spread nearly as fast as the British one. So the British one kind of crowds that one out. So the concern that people have is that the, the vaccine won't work as well on, on these variants and on future ones. So there was a big study that was published yesterday that got a lot of attention in the press that the press, as it's want to do, always seems to focus on the negative. So um, when you read the article, I'll tell you what's in it, it does sound very negative. And then I went to the actual paper itself and it gives somewhat of a different picture. So the, the results that came out of Israel is they did what's called a case control study, which is a uh, very important kind of a statistical technique where they got um, uh, about 200 people who had the virus um, without getting vaccinated and about 200 people who had the virus with getting vaccinated. And what they noticed is, uh, is, a, is that among the people who got the virus without getting vaccinated, um, about 1% of them had the South African variant. But among, among the people who got vaccinated, about 5% had the South African variant. So hold on, Adi, I'm, I'm confused about one thing. They found 200 people to put in the study who had been vaccinated and subsequently contracted coronavirus? Absolutely. Just to make it clear, by the way, because this is something that that kind of cranky people like Alex Berenson uh, makes a big deal out of. And he's right on this because people don't know it. The vaccine is 95 percent effective. That's still five yeah. <laughs> percent. There are plenty of people. In fact, I'll say I met. Let's be clear, Adi, just to clear it up, because people get yeah. this wrong. You are not saying that people have a five percent chance to get coronavirus no. if they take the vaccine. What you're referring no. to is um, I'll just use round numbers for our audience. Mm-hmm. The probability without the vaccine is one percent. The probability is five percent of one percent you got with it. the vaccine. So let's That's just be right. clear to everybody. There's not a five percent chance of getting the coronavirus. 
Right. So Israel, for example, in the last month or so has gotten a grand total of about 5,000 cases. It's not very many. And about 500 or four, between 200 and 500 of them have been people who've been vaccinated. From my understanding, and there's even a few deaths in that group. It doesn't always work. So you can't, you can't think it's not 100% effective and it works by multiplication. So let's, let's save that conversation for later. Yes, they found hundreds of people who had the vaccine, tested positive. I don't know whether they were sick or, that's not the point. It was just that they tested positive. So what, what they discovered was that the vaccine, the, the South African variant was about five to six times more common among the vaccinated people than in the unvaccinated people, mm-hmm. which would only happen, well, I shouldn't say only, which is plausibly explained by <laughs> the vaccine not working as well against the South African variant. Mm-hmm. 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 So okay. that was the headline. All right. And that sounds pretty disturbing until you dig in to two issues. One, first of all, it's not a random sample. <laughs> you know, you, who knows what cluster of people they got the, they got uh, who had COVID who were vaccinated. For all I know, that whole group had South African. So you can't make that much of the, the multiple factor, uh, factor of five or six. Secondly, it's only 200 people. We're looking at eight Eight cases, all right? So eight cases is, can be explained by a cluster. And finally, and here's the really interesting part, they have another 200 who got positive who had only been partially vaccinated. And the rate of the South African uh, variant was there. There's only one case of the South African variant. So it was just as low in the background as it was in the, in the control population. Which but Adi, suggests- I'll, I'll use your words from a couple of weeks ago. So mm-hmm. um, even um, the fact that more people who had gotten the vaccine, and these are all people who tested positive, mm-hmm. tested positive for the South African variant than people who had not gotten the vaccine. Who tested positive for the South who, African, yes. Who also tested positive. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait. Both groups of 200 tested positive for the South African variant? Or, so, uh, or... There's three groups of people. So I originally gave you two, and then I added a third. All right. There's three groups. There's a control group who never got vaccinated. Right. There is a, 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 uh, a well, those actually, call, there's a case group that had been vaccinated fully and a case group that had been vaccinated partially. In the fully vaccinated group, they were eight out of the 200 that had the South African variant. In either of the other two groups, it was one out of 200. So okay. what do you make of that? The, well, the news, by the way, failed to report anything about the partially vaccinated group where the South African variant was no more present. So among- is your statistical argument that there is randomness in small samples? That's one yep. possibility, because yep. if what you're saying, if one was causing, well, l- let me come up with a counterexample, a counter theory, which you're not going to support. But I, in, I know that. And you tell me why this is not a logical inference, statistical inference from what you're saying. Suppose someone were to argue. There's a monotone ordering here. No vaccination to partial vaccination to full vaccination. And the South African variant seems to be increasing. It's causing people to get the South African variant. How would you refute well, that? No, it's the data it, we have. It's not okay, well, it's not. So remember, it's, 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 it goes the other way around. It's one in the, in the controls, no vaccination. It's one in the partial. 
and it's eight among the South. No, that's what I'm saying. You really have to get a heavy dose of the vaccine to really catch the South African variant. How do you <laughs> well, refute that, that from the data? It, no, no, the I'm not saying doesn't catch anything. I mean, it's terrible. So, by the way, I actually I, I mean, it, the, you don't catch the, the getting the vaccine doesn't cause you to catch anything unless, of course, well, you're out there spending time with other people because you're vaccinated but i don't know you you, you don't can't tell what variant people have that's that's not that's one thing no, we no, can't no. again i'm not an immunologist and i don't believe this story but you could imagine at least a vaccine causing yeah. susceptibility like in some yeah i mean you know it is that's what i'm asking system but it's, all right so let me so, so, so actually here, so but. anyway interesting so i did have a long conversation with an immunologist and i learned so much and i don't understand even more after the conversation because it was difficult but what i learned about immunology um, suggests that the second booster shot may actually be, it's more protective against the wild type and they say the British type, which is very close, but it could be actually detrimental to your immune system in terms of your protectiveness against other variants. Because what the booster does is that it, it literally boosts up those antigens that are a very good match to the original uh, imp- uh, stimulus. So I learned about B cells. It's absolutely fascinating. But the basic idea is that the mRNA, which is extremely short-lived, it lasts for 10 minutes, goes in your arm. It stimulates your body to produce these these, uh, proteins. The T cells then gather up all these B cells out there, but none of them really match exactly because vaccines never, you know, your body's never seen it. But they mutate very, very rapidly. And very quickly, something kind of bumps into it and makes a good match. And that, like almost survival of the fittest, it, remute, it, it reproduces even faster. And so what happens is that one that matches is really present in your, in your bloodstream. And now the booster comes in and it really, it really hones in on that good one and it jacks it up enormously. So what that potentially could do is push down the availability of the antibodies that could match the variants. So, so it leads of, to a, a practical yeah. question, which is maybe one dose is really the right amount. <laughs> so framing this like a statistician, basically, your your body is producing a distribution mm-hmm. of antibodies. And, you know, that booster shot essentially concentrates that distribution maybe a little bit too much towards, you know, one specific type. one specific type of the virus. Whereas maybe you would actually kind of want a little bit less of a like almost like a more like a you know, on average weaker, but like higher variance kind of distribution of actual antibodies in your system. Well put. Yeah, maybe to also continue on this one dose. I I know you guys maybe saw the study that just came out today, which said that for COVID survivors, one dose may be enough. And this was a study that came out of UC San Francisco that actually, and this is Adi relates to what you've been saying all along. Why don't we give more people one dose, especially in the world of where a lot, maybe a third of the population has had COVID, this study is saying there's no extra efficacy for survivors of COVID to have more than one dose. Essentially, it's, it, there's no statistical difference in their degree of protection. Now, if that turns out to be true, if it turns out that that's true, then in some sense, this is, I don't want to use the word mismanagement, but there could have been a more optimal allocation of initial shots. One clarifying question is, is that would the theory be that it's already acting like a booster? The first one's kind of a booster from the original infection. Correct. Okay, got it. Yep. And- um, I, you know, there's a, a lot of data coming out of England that suggests that at the population level, maybe not on the individual level, but at the population level, 
the one dose mechanism is extremely effective. Their cases, their deaths, their curve looks just like Israel looked, except a few weeks behind because they haven't vaccinated as many people. Okay. Well, do you know, Adi, I know you know the number, but shockingly, it's amazing how it's grown. By the end of this week, the prediction now is that 50% of U.S. adults will have gotten at least one shot by the end of this week. Now, if that number, because they're, yeah, I mean, Saturday they gave 4.6 million vaccinations. Yeah, right. So if they, if it turns out that that number's true, and then we talked about this last week, we all, or maybe two weeks ago, we all tried to guess what fraction of the people do we think either had COVID or have gotten a shot. We got to start being inching up towards 60 to 65% at this point by the end of this week. I'm not saying that's the herd immunity number, but it's got to be, we're, we got to starting to be inching up on this that within, I don't know, three, four weeks from now, we've got to see these are not numbers starting to come down. We just have to. Well, I can say, I just said, I was at uh, my, my uh, 16 year old sec- second cousin. Uh, he, he, his mother was able to schedule an appointment essentially basically right away. She just called up the phone, got an appointment. For the 16-year-old. Yep. They're now eligible. And, and yep. that's, by the way, that's the key. Um, it's the young people because they're the people that are spreading it and spreading it quickly. Uh, there's another case in, in, uh, in another in Lower Marion School District. They're getting lots of cases. They're shutting down the classroom for a week. It's all mm-hmm. over young people it's all over and that they're the, the large group of completely unvaccinated people until well, that group sees substantial numbers i don't see it really going down that much well that was the other big deal this week was that as you guys all now know pfizer now had felt that they had enough data that they put in now already almost, it's actually four or five days ago the emergency youth authorization for 12 to 15 year olds and mm-hmm. so the idea originally it was like well it's going to be months i'm now hearing i'm now reading a totally different story they think within two to three weeks this will the Pfizer vaccine will be authorized for 12 to 15 year olds. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Adi agrees that is the young person population you're referring to, the people involved with youth sports, the middle schoolers, the high schoolers. That's the population that's coming next. And I agree with you, Adi, that's going to drive it way, way down. And if they can, and I agree with you, um, I, I, I'm saying this, I have a 15 year old son. Um, I've signed him up. Now, I didn't put down a fake birthday. I put down his actual birthday with the hopes that by the time they say, oh, 15-year-olds can get it, he's already in the queue. And they're like, oh, Mr. Bradlow, your son can get it now. I already signed him up. Let's see what happens. It's a difficult sell because they don't take it for themselves. They take it for us. Right. And this is where the message has to be reiterated. Um, And unfortunately... I don't think the message is being really, really well heard. I think we're going to have problems when it comes to a large fraction of the populations vaccinating their kids. They're not going to do it because a large fraction of the population isn't vaccinating themselves. I don't know what you guys hear about that. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 these things are going to go wanting. We've been talking about it for a long time, but it's ever more clear in, in parts of the country, people are, are just not going to take the shots. And so oh. I, I don't know, that's going to, it's going to, there's going to be very heterogeneous degrees of herd immunity in the, in the country. Well, we're starting uh, this relates. This is su- this is like a day where everything's been teed up so perfectly for the things I wanted to say. Um, as you guys know, um, Cornell and Brown are two of our peer Ivy League schools um, are requiring COVID vaccinations for people to come back to campus. Um, maybe look, last time I checked, um, my kids had to get vaccinated for the measles, the mumps, etc. That's required to go to public school. Why can't it be required? 
that they get a COVID vaccination. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say it would not surprise me if school districts, because maybe it's a compromise, a good compromise with the teachers, there may end up being requirements. We may have a requirement at Penn soon. We may be following Cornell and Brown, but I don't even want to talk about higher education. We might have it at schools where you have to get the COVID vaccine to go back in person in the fall, Adi. I, I absolutely believe that could happen. It's done now with other vaccinations. Why not COVID? Well, I will answer that question. Why not COVID? Okay. Because it, the, this vaccine, vaccine hasn't been studied as long as those. And the, the, what, the other piece of information I learned from my long immunology lecture, which is fascinating, and I, as I said, I didn't understand most of it, was uh, that the, the real trick is how, why does the body create antigens for this new protein? And the answer is, is that your, your, your body kind of learns what's, what's, what's native and what's foreign at a young age. And then anything that's, that it's never seen before, it just treats as foreign. And the problem is it gets confused and sometimes it attacks itself. And there's a concern that there are in some fraction of the population, your, the virus will cause it to turn on itself. And for us and older people, the virus itself can, is bad enough to warrant taking that chance without any full stop, no explanation point. And yes, but for a 12 year old or even younger, for whom the disease is essentially a non-entity, despite what you may hear or not hear, would you want your children to take that risk? You know, competing risks are about the same size. That's, that's absolutely a fair point. And so it really would be, it's, it's, you know, as you said, they're not taking mm-hmm. it for themselves, they're taking it for others. So guys, talking about these schools, uh, I was talking with a friend whose child is moving into that cycle and it feels like a bad year to be applying to college because of the delays so many took. What, what are you Better hearing? Better the last year. Rate? Well, no, no. I think what he's referring to, Shane, is um, just, you know, as a parent of a Penn student for the last seven years running, um, I can tell you, I, I looked at the data this year. I, I think you all saw this. Penn had the lowest admissions rate, and so did every Ivy League school because of the delay from last year of any year in the history of Penn by one third, meaning the lowest admissions rate ever at Penn had been last year, which was 8%, a little over 8%. This year it's down to 5.67% was the admissions rate to Penn. Um, At Harvard, Stanford, MIT, it was at 3% this year. And again, all of them have seen a reduction. So if it depends what you mean, Shane, by bad or worse, but what I think, yeah. I think what yeah, I might have been referring I, I was, to is if you were an applicant thinking, hoping to get in. Yeah, no, I was um, referring this was to not the, a very good year for that. Conditional on getting to co- into college, your actual first year college experience, I think, was it will be superior this upcoming year than it would be have been last no, year. But no, well, what happened? Getting into college, were, many kids were accepted and they just deferred their admission. Mm-hmm. So right. huge numbers of people who delayed are coming in, leaving fewer spots but the same number of applications that you typically got for fewer spots. So it's really not that it's not so much any change other than the, than the scarcity of the resource. Last year was the great year to get off the waiting list. That's what I understand. Right. Cause that was fantastic these, to get off the waiting these list. These vicissitudes of I mean, these just, just chance events that push lives around. It's just extraordinary. Would you suggest this as a, as a, as a gap year or is, is this a good time to step away from the application process? Because you're truly, I mean, these are like significant differences in the likelihood of getting into the schools you're, you might be aiming for. I mean, but we have some of this discussion even like last year, I think around this time. I mean, the trouble with this is a gap year. I mean, in some ways, yes, but what are you going to do with yourself? I like all the kind of cool stuff you do during a gap year, like travel, et cetera, like 
you know, we're coming what, back. We're, we're, we're probably, we're probably coming back and you may not be able to travel to India or Brazil, but you can travel some other places, at least in the U S. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm gonna, as uh, as someone who sent, uh, well, Eric sent a couple to college. I've sent two and I have a third on the way, but um, two of my kids took gap, gap years. I hardly recommend, I really recommend it. I also spend enough time with undergraduates to know that the older ones, particularly those who took time off, they engage in, in their intellectual um, studies, aspect of their studies very deeply. I think a little age is, uh, you know, I think the college is wasted on the youth. I think that's my expression. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're, we're, we're wandering a little bit afar, but it does- We are. Well, not, I think the impact, of co- the impact of COVID yeah. on education and stuff yeah. is, that relates to us. So I thought it was interesting and, and you know, what people are choosing and its impact on society is an interesting one. And from a statistical perspective, I think in some sense we call it, um, you know, in some sense, uh, future borrowing in some sense, because as Adi said, there just weren't as many slots because of the number of people that delayed. You know, we stockpiled enough pe- stockpiled enough applicants that uh, admit admits from last year that they bled over to this year. Question for you. D- does do people in Philadelphia need to still be wearing a mask on the streets, on the sidewalks of Philadelphia? Do you need to be wearing a mask? I mean, I'm asking you like from an efficacious. I mean, out- outdoors, did we really ever? Actually, yeah, I mean, like, I'm not asking, not to be controversial, but I mean, outdoors, never, I'm not sure we ever really need so to I'm, wear masks. So, it was more so of a social convention. It's one of the most striking features of returning to Philadelphia. I've been bouncing back and forth yeah. lately. And of course, I've been coming from a state where, you know, outside of Austin, there's not a lot of mask wearing, but it is striking how much mask wearing there is. But we have talked on this show for a year now about calibrating your risk and your behaviors and, and, and being a little less broad in all yes or all no. And it's, it, I mean, on the one hand, I appreciate the norm and the care. On the other, I just don't understand it at all. The, the, the need to wear masks outside. And as the, as the rate goes down, whatever need existed is only getting less. I continue well, uh, to do I it mean, just because of the norm part of it. Yeah. You know, so, and and I mean, like if I was to walk into a building and therefore like, you know, I don't have to want, we don't want people necessarily like, you know, all gathering around the start of a building, putting their masks on, et cetera. So I, I, I kind of get, but like, you know, hanging okay. on the park, I mean, that was never something we actually had to wear masks in a, you know, efficacy sense for, I there's, don't think. There's enormous amount of regional diversity, and uh, it's incredible. And, and it, it extends not just to mask wearing. Most The same people who wear masks who thought you had to wear masks outside also thought, are also thinking that the, the, the vaccine isn't protecting them, which is, an, and there's some data that came back that suggests that more than half the people who've been vaccinated don't really plan to change their lives. That's highly correlated with how you were living it before. So I actually, it's funny, you, you, I went to Boston uh, to celebrate my birthday with my son. We both have uh, birthdays a day, two days apart. And, um, and so I went up there and it was very shocking to me because they wear their masks when they're exercising, um, which is crazy. I mean, I mean, even down here, they, don't, they wear it outside, but they don't wear them when they're exercising. So Boston makes Philadelphia look like <laughs> much more extreme. On the other hand, I will say, I walked in there, I went to Starbucks, and I got a free coffee because it was my birthday, but they also wouldn't serve it to me. I was really upset. Why? Apparently, I was wearing a Yankee hat, and that doesn't fly very much in Boston. And apparently, apparently, this just <laughs> happened to you randomly on the way to the store. Without, I just want to say the last thing though. Without projecting forward, let's just also. I think it's important that we still talk about the data as it is today. So I went on the CDC website yesterday, just so everybody knows. There are still 60,000 plus cases reported a day. 
There are still over 700 deaths a day. And when you look at the, let's call it the trimodal distribution of each of these waves, this valley is no lower. It's not lower at all than the first two valleys. And that's despite the number I just told you that by the end of this week, 50% of the population will have at least one dose. So what's concerning to people still, concerning to the experts, is that why isn't this valley lower than the other two valleys when essentially we've taken a third or 40% of the population out of the risk zone? Why isn't there not a proportional reduction in the number of cases and deaths at the low point of the other two valleys? Okay. So the one, is it true that the death toll is also not lower? I, yeah, I thought the that death we were toll, getting better. If I, if I showed you, I'll bring up during our break, I'll, I'll bring up the CDC data. The, 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 the valleys of the first two waves were 700 deaths a day, which is identical okay. to the valley of this one. Okay, so am I being too glib to think the answer is that the vaccines are one thing, but the force in the other direction is what we've been talking about, these other variants. And the B117 is just so much more infectious that, that you're working against that. Is that too glib an answer? Well, the thing is that that's probably it is true. But the thing is, though, as Adi's always pointed out, the number one determinant, though, is age, which means why are 700 people still dying? It must be that we're so far underreporting the number of people with it now because we're not doing as much testing, because if the same number of people were getting it as before, given who's been vaccinated, the death rate would have to come down. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, nice I, I have one just observation. I think that the deaths that are happening have been in the queue a long time. Um, it takes a long time. In today's medical care, the, the ability to, they know how to handle it. Um, it's hard to save someone who's really in bad shape, but it can take six months before it happens. Really? And, or Absolutely. I think that we, that we used to see two weeks was the peak right after the peak of the cases, two weeks. Of, that is just, I think, way longer, way strong out, way long. I mean, we That's saw that. And we're seeing it in Israel, where that's it's, an interesting that, that drop is taking forever. It's still now they still only get, they get about seven or eight deaths a day, but it is that rate of decline. I believe they call that a slope is is not nearly as 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 rapid as the case drop and the serious case drop was. That's just still dragging out real slowly. It's going down. Your hypothesis of true is really, I mean, because it kind of transcends necessarily COVID. This could be the same thing for a lot of epidemiological, like or infectious disease type thing that like maybe as we get like, you know, as something goes on and we get better at treating it or at least like mm -hmm. lengthening, you know, it, it, death is not quite as quick or immediate. Does that mean that, you know, for a lot of infectious diseases, the kind of gap between the death, you know, kind of changes in the case rate and the death rate will actually increase? So it was like it was like one or two weeks early on because, you know, getting COVID back then was led to a much like. But I would still that would explain yeah. the slope of that curve. But why would it explain the height not being lower than before? That's the part unless unless it's I mean, again, the whole valley should be significantly lower than the other two valleys, given how many people have been vaccinated, even if the the decline, it's kind of like you're talking about it's still fast up, but it should be slow down. But that still means the whole level should be lower. I think it's going to go lower. I mean, there were the, the, we had more more cases in this third wave than any other by miles. I mean, it was up to three hundred thousand a day. Well, that's what peak. that's what's doing it. It was a, it was a bigger peak, and the valley is priced lower, but proportional to the peak, but not overall on absolute numbers. Yeah, not in numbers exactly. So, just a few more numbers on the way out here. Eric mentioned CDC grabbing today's data on vaccination. Shout out to New Hampshire. More than half of their residents 
have had at least one of the vaccination shots, 52% leading the country. Of the big states, Massachusetts, number four there, 44%. 44% of Massachusetts, at least one shot. And our neighbors across the river, New Jersey, those guys are only sixth or seventh in the country, and they're 42%. So just some notables there. Our, our 10 seed Connecticut still kind of pushing the leaders there, number three in the country with 44%. The laggards, just by the way, the laggards on the other end of the scale are um, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, and they're not quite half, a little above that, 27, 28% of their- Okay, do you think that's because of vaccine reluctance as opposed to availability? Yes, uh, we can be pretty sure of it because the CDC reports uh, the vaccinations that have been distributed, but not delivered, but not delivered, not administered yet. And so it does seem to be going in that direction. All right, guys, that has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do it every week. You guys can jump into the conversation. You can reach out to us. Twitter is a great way to reach out to us. At WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter. At WMoneyBall. We're always interested in your suggestions, observations, questions, topic ideas, whatever you got. At WMoneyBall on Twitter. You can also reach out by email. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We consider it a mailbag. We dip in there and grab questions and observations from you guys. We love to hear from you. Guys, open lines, open, open topic. The obvious one seems to me to be the Masters. It's been a while since we saw a Masters in the springtime, two years in particular. We had a, they were the last, last major last year, but it was a weird Masters. This was back to the azaleas and all that stuff. Um, any consumption this past weekend? Any observations from it? So I, I, there's a lot of things that went on. I mean, first, we have to give a huge amount of credit to Hideki Matsuyama, obviously the first Asian-born golfer uh, to win the Masters, uh, first Japanese golfer. I mean, people forget Y.E. Yang did beat Tiger Woods in 2009 to win, I think it was the PGA. So he's not the first mm-hmm. person of Asian descent to win a major. Where's um, Vijay Singh from? Vijay Singh is from Fiji. Okay. So he's certainly Asian Pacific. But VJ okay. Singh has won the Masters, uh, for sure. Okay. Um, but the part that was interesting to me, and you've talked about this all the time, Kate, is so Hideki Matsuyama to start the Masters was forty-six to one, and he was less than a one percent chance uh, on the betting odds on, on who bet on him. Uh, Zalatoris, who came in second, was ninety-five to one, <laughs> um, and so that was the top two players in the Masters were Hideki Matsuyama at 46 to one and Will Zalatoris at 95 to one. So I mean, I, I thought about this over the weekend. It's so bad. We say field, 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 take the field. And last week I said, oh, I'm tempted this year, this time. I'll yeah, go the, the, one, the one time we're like, no, let's not take the field. And of course it was the <laughs> field again. <laughs> <laughs> got to stay true to the philosophy, man. Yeah. Just stay philosophical. Now, I will say there were a couple of, you know, a couple of the big name people. Look, on his resurgence, Jordan Spieth ended up tied for third, played well again, was never really in contention. But, you know, uh, John Rahm uh, shot 66 on Sunday, although he was 11 back to start the day. So he wasn't really in contention, although he ended back in fifth, like four shots back. Um, 
No, this was, again, it shows you the huge amount of variability there is in golf. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing was interesting about Matsuyama, a couple interesting things. I didn't realize this. The past five seasons, he was, here was his ranking in terms of strokes gained approaching the green, meaning, you know, basically your second shot to the hole on a par four or third shot, second, third shot. Now, on a am, par I, five. am I remembering correctly that this is what Brody identifies as it's, the most important of the three spaces of the game? This is that is correct. Important. In other words, you'd rather get it 15 feet from the hole and putt average than get it 25 feet from the hole and putt great. You'd yeah. much rather have closest to the screen. Here are Hideki Matsuyama's rankings the last five years, despite, by the way, him not having won since 2017 prior to this. Third, fifth, sixth, fifth, fifth. So That's pretty show- solid. Of course, it raises the question of what about the other two phases of his game? Well, it means his putting must stink. <laughs> not necessarily. Okay, so I, I don't contribute that much in golf, but the one thing that I will contribute is that your is that what matters to your expectation is that middle range that approach stuff but what matters to winning is putt so adi you've given me this observation i absolutely love it and we have to do something more with it but just act like we don't know what you're talking about how could that be adi come on man what's the All difference right, so thing? in other so it's funny about it. okay so basically um there's a lot of variance in an actual golf tournament and most of that variance comes from the putting in a single tournament there's also a lot of variance in play in actual ability and much more of that var- variance is in that is in the other aspects of your golf game other than the putts so in other words the difference between the greatest putter and or not the greatest is too too extreme let's say the 95th percent top putter and the five percent bottom putter putter isn't that different as opposed to say the difference between the five the 95 percent approach shot and the fifth five percent approach that that's many there's, more there's less the true variation in skill in the putting part of the game than in the approach shots and probably off the box okay great but then, and then why wait. is it that why is it that it determines winners adi because there's a lot of variance there's actual every single uh basically every single uh, uh hole has a putt right and they all i mean that matters and, and you can be a one or a two depending on whether or not your putt went in so there's a huge amount of essentially bernoulli variation at the end of every hole and that adds just a lot of variance to the I think game. you're saying that luck is one of the biggest factors in determining who wins a golf tournament and most of that or maybe a big chunk of that anyway is delivered on the putting green. Well, I think also what audience That's should right. also be saying is and I'm not going to use the word momentum, I'll use a different <laughs> term which is serial correlation. What I mean by that is um all the greens essentially in most tournaments are watered at the same level. What they are on the stimp meter, which is the speed of the green is roughly the same. That was the most Philadelphia sounding term you've ever used in seven years on the show. You've never sounded more Philadelphia than you just sounded. What what happens on the greens? It's called the stimp meter. I didn't call it. No, no, no. What happens? They're they're what at the same time? Serial correlation. They're watered. They're watered down. I, I, I grew up in New York. I don't think I have a Philadelphia accent, but they were, the greens were watered. I'm with Kate. It, 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 it did sound like you were about to have a water ice. All right. Well, either way, maybe I've been in Philadelphia for a long time. Um, my comment was is that um, you could very well, once you're able to read the first couple greens, maybe that correlates your ability on others. In other words, you're having – it's not – there's probably a rationale for good weeks and bad weeks in putting certain types of grass versus others, certain speed types versus others. So I I guess what you're really talking about, Eric, is it kind of like putting 
under your hypothesis, putting kind of has the most with in-person variation, like, you know, so, so if you're kind of on with putting, then that, that actually is, you, you know, as opposed to like your approach shots obviously are a big part of the game and very important across kind of across describing the variation across players, but in terms of like how much within person variation there is, and some of that might just be realized Bernoulli variation as Audie pointed out, well, but this, the kind of within person variation. Can we is, distinguish, is, is, can we distinguish Eric's idea from one in which there is no autocorrelation it is purely chance Adi could you look at your putting data and determine whether there is momentum or <laughs> whether it's just chance can we distinguish that in sure. those as a matter of fact I have a team of students looking at that data exactly and we had a hard time actually formulating a test statistic so it's very common to look at things like well if uh, how likely are you to, to sink a putt given that you made the previous two or previous three or even just the previous one compared to the base rate um, and creating a test statistic that measures, say, runs, uh, sequences in a row. But it's very hard because putts aren't all the same, unlike, say, free throws in basketball. Every one of those essentially is the same fundamentally. But in putts, you have different distances. Right. So right. it's very difficult to do. So we, what we did can't was you, we Can't you do a, runs of exceedances or can't you do autocorrelation of exceedances? Like the expected number of strokes for this putt would have been this, but this is what you did. And therefore we look at residuals and we actually look at the correlation among the residuals. Right. The hard part from that is, is that uh, you could do that. That was one, that was one approach to taken. The hard part from that is that the, um, you either above the expectation or below the expectation because the expectation sure. you either sink right. it or not. But so, but I mean, so you could even look at run, like what we're talking about is really just like, are there kind of, do you have runs of the same sign? Like, I mean, like, again, like yeah. if, if, if there was no serial correlation, you, you would kind of expect there would be no kind of uh, that predict, you know, having, having being above the residual on hole, you know, five is not, not predictive of being above or below the residual on hole. Yeah. So that's, yeah, so that's more or less the same, the same, yeah. just a reformulation. It's either uh, th those are all looking at more or less the same set of statistics. And it depends on having a calculator that tells you either the expected number of shots until you sink the putt from the green or at the very least a probability calculator as a function of distance. That's the one we used. We actually created mm -hmm. that from the data. Yeah. It turns out it fits. You can fit a function that very, very well. And what did you find? Mark Brody, uh, he gave me some advice on how to do it. it. A logistic curve fits provided you transform the, the variables appropriately. So, so what did you find? What did you find? Oh, is there uh, is there serial the, correlation? The, the the first set of analysis that uh, my student did did not find it, and now we're going at a different a different angle. That's usually what happens. You didn't get the result you thought you might see, so you try a different statistic. So I, I also something else kind of caught me from the masters too. Um, and since Adi, you don't have the notes in front of you, I'll just tell you. Um, how do you think someone who's gotten fifteen straight rounds of par or better? at the masters would be doing person's got 15 consecutive rounds of par or better at the masters. Well, let's think about like what, what percentage of the field that made that played the weekend finished below par only. Account well, uh, there were about 15 players that were, I, there were maybe 20 players that were total below par, but only one player Zalatoris who shot par or better in every round. So, I mean, I would certainly at the minimum predict that that person's making the cut every time. Yeah, well, they've, that's good. They've made the cut. But I, I try to think of underperformers. I always like doing this. So the player I'm talking about is John Rahm, who's now number three in the world. Um, 
He's got zero titles at the Masters, despite 15 consecutive rounds under par. He's one away from the record, by the way. 16 is the, is the record for consecutive rounds at par or better at the Masters. Wow. Um, the other person I was looking at is, although he has one win, uh, Jordan Spieth has five top three finishes in the Masters. He's only played eight. He's got top three five times, and he's won one. So the question becomes, like, are these people somewhat underperforming given – it's, it, we already talked about this. Some weeks you're on, some weeks you're not. Well, Jordan Spieth seems to always be on at the Masters. I guarantee you, if Ti- well, this is the big difference between Tiger Woods and everybody else. Tiger Woods would not have five top three at the Masters with only one win. Mm-hmm. It's just not happening. But he's no the way. one. I mean, he, he's kind of the outlier in all this, right? I mean, conditional on sort of being... I mean, we even I, Jack I, Nicholas. We talk about this. By the way, I know you guys know this. We know Nicholas, the magic number eighteen. He's got eighteen major titles. You guys know how many second places he has? Probably about the same. It is. It's nineteen or twenty. I just forget yeah. which of the two. Nicholas had more second places than he did first places. I guarantee you, Tiger Woods does not have more second places at the majors than he does first places. No yeah, way. I think. I think Tiger, especially because he kind of like was the dominant base of sorry golfer like throughout like you know my adult following golf or whatever. I think it's just really kind of changed people's perceptions and norms on that kind of like. I mean, he is the outlier in terms of the probability of winning, conditional on being say in the top ten going into Sunday or whatever it is. Yep. Um, so, so I would say Spieth probably is not that I'm not sure relative to actually non tiger historical norms, whether Jordan Spieth really, well, we can say the following he's been in the top 10 performance. Um, forget the masters. He was in five. He had five top tens in the last uh, six weeks. And he won once mm-hmm. just to show you that um, the other person that called me, was but, but hold on. how does this connect? How does this connect to the conversation we just had? Because if putting, is that big a factor and putting is hugely chance based, then you don't want to over attribute wins and losses based on that. Right. So for Spieth, for example, he, he's, he had some trouble in the middle of the round, but early on he, he missed, he just missed some really decent birdie opportunities. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, he makes those, it's, it's a little bit different round and it probably is within the range of Adi's variance that he observes on putting. So, I think that I think if you took Adi's lesson real seriously, you'd you'd go a little slow with those kinds of attributions, right, Eric? I think that's I think that's fair. I think what it says though is is that um, I think uh, Shane is right. I think there are some players who maybe it's the following is true. Um, maybe there are some players who just putt well for seventy two holes, and there are other players who can putt well for eighteen holes, and the players who putt well for seventy two holes. They win the tournament, and the players that can putt well for 18 or 36 holes, they end up in the top 10 in the tournament. I, I don't know. Adi's just shaking my whole understanding of it because now I think this whole putt well thing is, is uh, over-attribution. I think he's got a low-power statistic. That's what I think. I think, well, I, 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 think I, I mean, all I know is that if you if – you, if you, so one thing you can do, and this is the, the data analysis that anyone can do at home if you had the data, which you don't. Um, but uh, one thing I did was I, I looked at the – you, you look at the strokes over expected value, so strokes gained, and you just look at that in each of the uh, sections of the of the um, of the hole. So the the drive, the approach, and the putt, um, they're they're labeled, and you look to see whether beating the expectation, how well that correlates with your your rank in the tournament. And it turns out that beating your expectation in putt is the by far the most correlated with the position of of how you did in the tournament. That's a pretty nice observation, right? And that suggests that 
that to, to that it, if you had one piece of information of how you did in the tournament about one uh, uh, on, on, on which it would be how well you put it well just and so you know Adi, i mean you take more than just so you know um you it's probably also correlated just to the magnitude you take more putts in the tournament than you do any other stroke well yeah, yeah but it's still scaled right so that just there, i mean it, it there you take more putts which means there's more variance right but but right so well there, or there's twice as many chance opportunities for putting per hole then there are, or there's the same number of chance opportunities in putting in hole as all the other like. But, but everybody has the same number. So it's not like, it's like when, I, it's not like I'm, I'm uh, I mean, everybody has the same number of holes and there's no variation there. Everybody, not everybody has the same number of putts. Right. Of course not. That, so. That's yeah. But, but that's true, but that's, that's baked into it. I mean, so all, all I'm doing is you, you're just um, looking. It's it'd be equivalent to saying, is it better to be above average as a relief pitcher, or a starter pitcher right. for a team? And you'd, you know, you'd take, you'd take starter if you could, because you get more innings out of them. That's right. And so, but we're looking at performance, right? Not, not an expected performance. No, but so, I, I'm just, and I'm, retrospectively, I'm it's more likely you won or lost the game because of a bad, like, 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 like it's a, it's a retrospective thing. Mm-hmm. So again, I think it is sort of about like, yeah, the realizations of putting, you know, are these zero one outcomes of sinking it or not, you mm-hmm. know, I just, I think do add uh, the, the, the sort of, I think you phrased it, Cade, originally the best way is that that's where most of the kind of luck in a round is concentrated, I think. Um, yes. Therefore, but just think about it in terms of ranking. It's going to be very correlated with who won or lost because, you know, that, you know, they, they you know, retrospectively, they, we get the, the luck is built into their score. Right. Just think of it in terms of ranking. Rank in any tournament, rank the putters from one to, you know, 100. Then see how well that correlates with your position, one to 100, and do that in and, and all the sections of the, and the, 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 the ranking in your putting will, will correlate the strongest with your overall ranking. It's not, I don't think we're that. just we're just we're positing there's a mechanical explanation for that because you get twice as many of those as you do. Yeah, what you just twice. described that ranking Audi is not adjusted for the number of strokes devoted to putting versus everything else, right? Yeah, because right. putting you do if you do putting twice as much as every other stroke, then of course the rankings due to putting are going to be more correlated with the rankings of total outcome. Then so that's now we we need you and your students to control for that and come back and talk to us once you've controlled for the frequency with which these things are used on the course. The other thing I was going to mention, another interesting stat was you know obviously for those who watched the painful 16th hole of Xander Schauffele, who triple bogeyed when he was only two down after birding four in a row, I started to think. You know, I wonder if he just choked. And then I started to wonder, you know, well, how often are triple bogeys in, in majors? Like maybe they're pretty often. Well, I, ca- I can't speak to that data, but I can speak to you for Xander Schauffele. Um, he had played 1,041 holes in a major prior to that shot and had never triple bogeyed or worse a hole. 1,041 holes. Now, I don't want to call that choking. I'm just commenting. That's an extraordinarily rare event for Xander Schauffele, one of the top pros in the world, to hit a triple bogey. He had never done that on any hole in any major he had ever played. Okay, so Eric, talk to us about the situation because one could imagine – that's getting pretty late in the tournament. He's only got – that's one of the last three holes to play. three holes to play, and he's down two. He's down two, so he's got to make up some distance. And so you can imagine a dial up the variant strategy is appropriate at some point. I'm not sure if he was there or not, but at some point you do need to dial Absolutely. up. Absolutely. So to what extent does that help explain what he tried to do? The only concern I have with what he tried, I agree with that. Look, look, for example, if you're on the last hole, you got to go for uh, holding it out from the yeah. fairway. Obviously yeah. you have to. 
the problem is that 16th hole, the only line that I've ever seen that really gives you very, very close to the hole is not the line he took because it's on a big embankment. They always put the hole on Sunday at the bottom of the hill. Well, you can hit the ball to the top of the hill and it will roll down to the bottom of the hill. It won't go into the water because the way they have it curved. He tried to essentially go straight at the hole. The line he was taking was straight at the hole, except there's a bunker in front of it. And then it also slopes, as I just said, downhill, which means if you hit into the side of the bankment low on the hill, you could bounce right into the water, which is what happened to him. And so even if you were going for the high variance strategy, I don't think variance or expectation the line he took is the line that gets you closest to the hole on 16. You've all heard about these roars on the 16th of Augusta. It's the guy that hits at the top of the hill and the ball rolls straight down towards the hole. And sometimes it goes into the hole. I've never seen anybody in all my years of watching the Masters that went straight at the hole and the ball has ended up extraordinarily close. Unless they miss hit it, it barely clears the water and the bunker right over it. I will say that's one thing that I felt was missing a little bit this year. That, that Sunday, those roars, someone gets on, someone gets hot, and you and you just hear about them hole after hole. Shoffley, one of Shoffley my favorite, had four birdies in a row. You can't get hotter get than that. Well, do you think that 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 was the other part of the question? Was 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 he feeling was he feeling that momentum to some extent? Did that fuel his decision to be what to try what he thought was a more aggressive line? Yes, he even said so. He goes, "I was I was hot." I went for the more aggressive line. I question whether that was even the line, the, yeah. what you're using, the aggressive line. But, yeah, he was very clear. I wouldn't change a thing. I would do the same thing again. I was rolling. He used the words. I was rolling. I was hot. I was going for the hole. And I wow. just think, go to wow. the top of the hill and roll down, and you'll still go for the hole. Eric, you're such a Tiger Woods fan. Where in the, in the, in the pantheon of great sporting moments for you was the 2005 chip-in at 16? Sunday afternoon chip in that that he they, he was down below the hole off the green chipped up and around and it curled and it took that one last roll into the cup. I, I remember the moment and I remember the analysis afterwards that they were basically saying he could have dropped a hundred balls where he was and this is the only any great pro great pro and none of them would have gotten it in the hole. Matter of fact, they were even suggesting that getting it within five or six feet of the hole would have been uh -huh. a tremendous, like, draw a circle around it and let him hit 100 balls. That's so, fun. yeah, that was, a, that was obviously another great moment. So, fellas, let's hold off on baseball because we've got, uh, we're going to have to wrap up here in just a quick second. But tell me about this boxing thing that's going on. What the heck? Holyfield's still boxing? Well, they, he claims similar to what uh, Mike Tyson did the other uh, time when he fought as well. They're saying this is an ex exhibition. He's fighting an eight-round exhibition on June the 5th. He's 58 years old. I forget the name of the guy he's fighting. Maybe he got him young or something. It's whoever Tyson fought in his last fight and lost to is the guy that Holyfield is fighting. And Eric, look, my, my impression of boxing is that it's so much more endurance related than any of us appreciate until you box a little bit and you realize it's massively endurance driven. What happens when a couple of 50 year olds try to box? They just kind of lean on each other for a while. Is it people want to watch this? Well, we didn't. I mean, that's essentially what happened. If you remember the Tyson fight against was it Roy Jones? Is that not who he fought? Tyson? I think it was Roy Jones just recently. And by the end of the first round, they were done. I mean, they were, <laughs> they were hitting each other and they were throwing punches, but they were done. And this is the thing you're going to, you're right, Kate. There's no way this fight goes eight rounds, or if it does, they're just <laughs> leaning on each other because 
you just can't. You're right. I mean, he'll be exhausted by the end of the second round at most. And we all know no one was in better shape than Evander Holyfield. But still, it, it just can't be a real fight for eight rounds. It can't. Well, I'm always impressed with the business model that boxing has. Somehow they they give out these massive purses. And you think the sport is fading away, but then they turn around and give that kind of purse to a 50-year-old guy. Uh, it's just remarkable business they generate. Well, not only that, Oscar De La Hoya is fighting. He's 48 and he's fighting on July the 3rd. And that's a real fight. That's not an exhibition. Wow. All right. Okay, fellas, that has been the second quarter and first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now. Got the whole team coming to you via Zoom as we have for the last year plus. Adi Weiner is here. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradlow is here. And this is Cade Massey. Guys, short quarter here to talk about whatever we got left to talk about. I know that y'all won't talk about baseball because y'all have been watching and it's been going on for a little while. What have we learned so far? Can we learn anything in the amount of baseball that we've watched? Well, we can learn the Dodgers are good when we do <laughs> that, <laughs> but they look extremely good. They're eight and two with a giant gap between uh, runs allowed and runs scored. What counts as a giant gap? Like on average, what's the difference in a game? Uh, two and a half runs by now, a little more than that. They're winning their games by. Which is gigantic. That's a big difference. I mean, the the baseball team typically scores four runs, maybe four and a quarter. Winning by a margin of two and a half is huge. Because that's going to include the games that they lose too, right? Yes. Okay, got it. (laughs) All right. Uh, What makes them look so good? Like what what part of the team is is so impressive so far? (laughs) Uh, you guys want to jump in? I've I mean, I, I mean, I, honestly, they're they're both their pitching and 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 hitting has been kind of off the charts, and I, it's impressive to me because they actually have not. Uh, you know, Mookie Betts has been, you know, which is, of course the player I track the most closely on their team. Um, do you want him to do well or poorly? How does it work? I want him to do well. I mean, I I am still very upset that he's not on the Red Sox. I I just can't believe a generational talent like that was traded away. But at the same time, I do wish him well. Red Sox have won six straight. Yeah, That's after losing three in a row to Baltimore to open things <laughs> up, you know, which was an inauspicious start, they've now won six in a row. What was the uh, right. wasn't the over under something like? Didn't we talk about the Shane a couple of weeks ago? Wasn't the over under on the Red Sox something like I don't know, like seventy five, and we just couldn't believe it was that low. Yeah, it was maybe like I, I I've seen High like 70s. 78, 78 to eighty, like basically five hundred record, just a little bit under five hundred record. Which you know, I mean, I six and three is not inconsistent with that, but they're off to a good start. No, that's right. No one, no one in the AL East is, is jumping out to domination. What we always do is we like to look at how after nine, 10 games, is there any team, is there any surprise? So we know the Dodgers were going to be great. We know that the, the, uh, we said the San Diego Padres were going to be very good and they are very good. We did expect, we did expect the Mets to be pretty good. They've looked meh, but they've only played five games because they had the, they lost their opening series. Um, the Red Sox is a surprise. Most of, most of the Yankees, Tampa Bay, they're, you know, they're four and five each. We don't really know much. It's very early. Um, I mean, I would say one surprise, and it's, you know, I mean, again, there's a little bit of a COVID, COVID caveat to this, but Washington, 
having the worst record in Major League Baseball yeah. right now is certainly surprising to me. They're one in five. They've so only played six games because of COVID issues and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I especially don't believe them to stay at that rate because they're the Nationals and they're supposed to be good. But also, obviously, there might be some COVID influence in there. So too. let's do something that Shane and I did last week, but for a different – it was for baseball as well. But let's do it for an individual player. So on the Red Sox, J.D. Martinez – hit three home runs yesterday, but more importantly, he has 16 RBIs in eight games. So let's imagine we were predicting JD to have roughly a hundred for the season, which is not a bad estimate for him. So let's call that 0.6 a game. His expected number of RBIs right now should be five and he's at 16. So he's at plus 11. So if your previous estimate for RBIs for him was a hundred, would you now just say it's 111? Or would you say that 0.6 that we started with was a little bit too low? He might be a 0.63 guy, which means 105, which means we have to add not only the 11 extra he has, but we have to up his rate estimate. So that adds another three or four on. So now if you had to make me guess right now, I'd guess 115 RBIs. What do you guys think? To me, that sounds about right. Sounds about right to me. I mean, the real issue is that RBI depends on having people on base to knock in. So if the Red Sox outperformed their earlier expectations, we might expect that to shrink back down. Great point. So the real issue mm-hmm. is you got to give them 11. I mean, th- those are in the books, right? You can't take them away. Yeah. Um, the real issue is, has the rate fundamentally changed? Maybe a little bit, but I don't think so. I, mean, I went Martinez from 0.6 to 0.63, by the way. That's yeah. a 5% increase only yeah. in his rate. So it's not like I but jacked his rate by 20%. Yeah, but he's already – he's one of the premier hitters in the league. I mean, that's really not someone you're going to be wanting to bump yeah, up. Yeah, but I mean – no, no, that's right. And, and I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't adjust his personal kind of rate, hit rate or whatever like that much based on what we've already seen. But, I mean, I think Eric's kind of like second-order point – or, or the second-order point you know, thing worth factoring in is that like, if, you know, is what we're seeing so far indicative also that the team, his teammates around him are a little bit better than we maybe thought they were good going to be and are going to be getting on base a little bit more often than we thought we were, because that also drive that, that, that plus his own hit rate is what's going to be driving his RBIs. So I guess I'm saying we're, we're learning a little bit. We, we maybe might not just want to alter his sort of own ability level. We should alter kind of like sort of the con- – we might want to change a little bit our model of the context around him or the kind of like our, our average, average image of what, how many men are going to be on base when he comes up. That calls to what is our what is our our mental model of what drives those things, and we may not be thinking about it comprehensively enough. That's interesting. By the way, what direction do people usually get this wrong? Do you think, Eric? I love, we we go through some version of this exercise early in the baseball season every year. Do you think people are too quick to extrapolate or too slow to extrapolate? I, I think people extrapolate too much. They're like, well, isn't that two RBIs a game? Yeah, two mm-hmm. times one sixty two. Isn't that 324 RBIs? So let me shrink some number between 100 and 324. Yeah. But that's not the right calculation. Yeah, so yeah, I, think, right. I think a lot of people would say, well, he's, he's definitely 140 plus, 140 plus this year. And I just don't think the numbers, I mean, maybe, but that, that would be outside of any reasonable interval range at this point, I would think. Just for, good to point out, the Angels are having a decent beginning. They're six and three. Um, and the Angels, we always root for 
just a quick you haven't probably haven't checked but how do you think mike trout's doing this no year, no Rob? no i have checked you i have checked. every <laughs> single day on mike trout i think his i think his obp on base plus slugging is something like 1.4 at this point oh it's 1.39 it's oh sorry absurd. only i said one four his batting average is only 414 <laughs> it is early but that's that's extraordinary well, that's a good one to keep an eye on. What what has he done in recent years? Is it that we just kind of adapted to his level of performance, or has he been a little bit below expectations the last couple of years? No. The problem with, with Trout, we bring this up every year, is he doesn't have 150 RBIs ever or ever anything close. He never hits 50 home runs. He usually doesn't hit 40. Yep. Um, he doesn't hit 360, like to lead the league in batting average like LeMayhew. He does everything extraordinarily well, but nothing at the best. And, you know, in five-dimensional space, there's nobody near him. Not even close. Okay, so I, mean, I will this. point Can out we... that his, o- his OPS is usually in the top yes. three in, in the majors. So, I yes. mean, like in terms of kind yeah. of the one number summary of his kind of overall hitting, like mm-hmm. like a- average hitting – he mm-hmm. is. He does pop up as kind of yeah. Cool. OPS. He always dominates. And, we, and I think, still... but, but I think we have, you know, just kind of gotten so used to it that it, we, yep. we kind of take it for granted. Do do Fair do you think there's a bias in general against folks who are well well rounded? So if you deliver the same value, so however you want to build your war, but deliver the same value versus relative via relatively even. Mm-hmm. Versus very acute attributes, which would lead you to being one of the most noticeable, you know, best guys in the league. Do you think there'd be a bias against the well-rounded one? I think so. Extremely biased because the extreme events is what keeps us interested. I think as fans, those are the most fascinating. But there's two pieces to war, which are particularly uh, difficult to admit in terms of popularity. One is the position adjustment and the other is the fielding. And neither of those things a fan pays much attention to. But sabermetrically, statistically, they matter a lot. You're talking about defensive war. So you defensive, you're, they're all part of it. I know, but defensive you're defensive war, you're... and then there's the position adjustment by itself. Oh, I see. And center yeah. field is a is a is a premier position to hit well at center field to get a nice bump and to to field well. I mean, he's a very good fielding center fielder. He's not the best fielding center fielder. That's with Kiermaier or someone else. But it's it's again it. What's yeah, interesting, he Nadi, is we both agree that he's a lock for the Hall of Fame. What Imagine, though, writing, trying to write what his Hall of Fame plaque will say. It won't say how many World Series he won, because, well, maybe, but that's yet to be written. It won't say how many batting titles he won, because he hasn't. It won't say how many 50 home run seasons he has, because he hasn't, and he probably won't ever have a 50 home run season. It won't say how many years he led the league in RBIs, and so we, which are the standards uh. Be very interesting. To know. I don't know what Salfino is who writes the backs of baseball cards. Uh, what is he going to say? <laughs> the greatest well, hitter of our generation. <laughs> maybe that's what that's what they might say. But they're going to yeah. have to use things like OPS. They're going to have to use things like consistency. They're going to have to use, as Matt just put in the box, MVPs. They're going to have to use like top 10 in hitting for 15 consecutive seasons. You know, they're going to have to do something like that. Cause I like the way you put it. He's great in everything he does, but he's not the best in any single dimension. And, that's and I think it might, and I, and I think, I think versus single dimension. And I, and I, and I think it will really depend on kind of his longevity of being able to do this. I mean, if he can have longevity, this kind of excellence and longevity, he might actually challenge. He might be one of the top war of all time. 
I mean, he's got a long ways to go for that. I yeah, think he's yeah, like no, got... I mean, it's hard for him to imagine rivaling Ruth or Bonds, but he's going to be he's going to be close. I mean, there's no question. It's it's interesting. I, I think I think it's probably the case that we just have trouble with more than one dimension, and we have trouble aggregating more than one dimension. And I think I wonder to what extent this generalizes to non-sports performance evaluations. If, if it's something that happens, you know, in organizations, and then you can flip it around and ask politically, then politically, if it applies in non-sports organizations, then you should want to be great at one thing. Even well, if, let's, if, let's if talk about, about someone who's, she is extraordinarily great in her sport and she seems ready for the Olympics. And that's one of my favorite Olympic athletes of all time, Katie Ledecky, who just com- competed in an event. And I don't know if people can understand how difficult this is. Besides all the gold medals she's won, she set this year's best at the 200, 400, and 1500 meter, which means the shorter races, not the 50, but the shortest races and the 1500 meter. That's remarkable because usually racers have to specialize. You're no, on no, no, great... hold on. What are the distance? You said 200, 400, and 1500. Okay, well, the fastest, the shortest race are 50 and the 100. Those are the sprints. I, I know. I'm just saying, yeah. I, I didn't say the shortest. I said, the yeah. sh- oh, well, 200, 400 are considered endurance, but not endurance yeah. in the way 1,500 is. No, no. And so my only comment is she has, and my, by the way, you're not, I'm convinced at the Olympics, she may well swim in the 50 and the 100 also. Now, whether she'll win those is a different mm. issue. That, that would be truly remarkable. But again, this is one of the, and I believe she attended Stanford. Um, I believe she competed while a college swimmer so it's not like she's been just training a hundred percent of the time she went to college and so to me this is just a remarkable athlete just it's just tremendous well i'm glad you brought her up because she's a keynote speaker at the wharton people analytics conference this thursday so the day after this thing post we're going to have ledecky in talking with us about high performance and i think one of the things she talks about is she's going to compete in in, in more events in this year's Olympics than usual because they've brought an additional distance um, into the Olympics. It's a distance that women swim outside the Olympics, but they haven't swum. No, it was the 1500. The 1500 is the new one. And that's the one where she set the year's best. And I don't think she's, I don't want to say she's never swam it before. Of course she has, but this is the first time in any major competition that I think she ever swam it. Just to to throw out one observation about women and men, the difference between women and men at the in long distance swimming is the event where the gap is the smallest yeah, across right. sports. Right. And, and right. in fact, if they did 3000, I think women would beat men. Out, I think the women might beat the men. <laughs> That's why women remember, I remember our friend, uh, the, our endurance scientist down at Duke. It's uh, the, the greatest endurance event. The limit of human endurance is carrying a child. So they, <laughs> the universe gave that one to women. Uh, on that's right uh fellas in the last couple of minutes here anything interesting going on with the with the nfl draft we've only got a couple weeks left to talk about it because it's going to happen are are one two and three locked up is that what we're hearing certainly not the i mean it's unlikely there'll be any kind of trades out in or out of there i think at this point i but Mm -hmm. but which players they take i I think we're all anticipating three quarterbacks it has to be given the trades that happened before then the jets don't really have a quarterback uh, the San Francisco 49ers already said, why, why would you trade up to three if you weren't drafting a quarterback? Yeah. And we know the Jaguars are. I think the top three, but ex- I, I think, we I, believe I, I, Trevor I think Lawrence four, has to be one. But exactly- Four is very interesting because it's Atlanta, and it's not clear that they have such an immediate need for a quarterback, though they 
certainly have an opportunity to take one if they wanted to kind of this would that would sort of signal that they're kind of thinking looking ahead longer term than Matt well, Ryan. You know, but... this is the classic opportunity. It could be a new Brett Favre, um, Aaron Rodgers situation where you're not getting rid of Matt Ryan today. And let me tell you, if you draft a Trey Lance who might need a couple years, this could be the perfect situation. I wouldn't be shocked if they take Trey Lance, if he's still there. If he's still there at number four, it would not shock me at all. Or it wouldn't shock me also if another team were to take a, um, let's take. I mean, at least one of Trey Lance, Justin Fields, or Zach Wilson will be there at number four. But you'd say they would only really be interested in Trey Lance. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I think they have an opportunity since Matt Ryan is still not only a viable quarterback, it's an insult to call him just a viable quarterback. He's still a very good quarterback in the NFL, but he doesn't have an infinite number of years left, and their window is probably no more than two years, three years with him anyway. Therefore, it's an ideal situation. I think a lot of people believe the upside of Trey Lance may be greater than the upside of a Justin Fields or one of the other quarterbacks as well. And the thing that's going to shock me is I just didn't think if 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 the uh, San Francisco 49ers, it's, I always get his name. It's Mac Jones, the, the Alabama quarterback. Yeah, Mac Jones. I, that's just shocking to me if this guy goes number three. Why? Yeah, I'd be shocked too. I just, I, th- I, th- I think it's more likely to be Trey Lance or Justin Fields. I just think uh, you don't, you you're, not, you're not a believer. You guys have convinced me about priors and stuff coming into this season, and I don't think he had such a phenomenal season. I don't think this guy was anybody's top five, and he's still not in mine. So he had a very good season. I mean, it rivals Joe Burrows, really. And the thing about him is that you might normally short him because he didn't start that many games, and starting college games is actually a pretty good predictor of NFL performance. But he played behind some really good talent down there in Alabama, and I don't think we've accounted well for the guys he waited behind when you adjust for how much experience he got at the college. That is a good point. All right, guys, that has been the third quarter. We still have one quarter to go. We're going to do an interview, going to talk to Scott Fawcett about Masters in Golf. Fun conversation. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Traditional interview segment, at least traditionally since we started the remote pandemic version of Wharton Moneyball. In this segment... We are delighted and pleased to have Scott Fawcett join us. Scott is the founder creator of the Decade System of Golf Analysis, Golf Management. We're going to dig in to find out exactly what it is. But Scott uh, is somebody who came to our attention brightly this past weekend in particular. We've been following Scott a little bit over the years, but one of his friends and clients did quite well this past weekend. We're going to hear about that. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I often get a little nervous when I'm actually talking to some Ivy League people that I'm going to finally get called out as a mathematical fraud, but we'll try to keep the word small. <laughs> Not at all, Scott. Not at all. We're delighted to talk with you about the work you're doing. Uh, it's exciting to see. We're all about variance. And so it's exciting to see somebody work about with distributions. Let's take distributions to the golf course and see what we can do with it. And it seems like you're doing some cool things with it. Let's start with Will Zalatoris, a lot of folks had not heard of Will before this past weekend. He opened well and, and hung strong. Ends up second place, one stroke back uh, at the Masters. Great first Masters for him. He, of course, had a great career at Wake Forest, who, which is a, a strong college program. And spent quite a bit of time growing up in the Dallas area where we understand you crossed paths with him back at the country club. Is that, is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so I've known Will 
when his dad, when they moved out to Dallas from San Francisco, I actually own an electricity company here in Texas. I played professional golf for a few years and then I started an electricity company when Texas deregulated. And so it's pretty funny because when his dad came in as a new asset manager for the Galleria Mall, there's no question he was calling me in to fire me as the new guy. Um, again, this is 15 years ago now. And luckily for me, I wore a Bent Tree golf shirt that day. And <laughs> he said, are you a member of Bent Tree? I'm like, I'm the reigning club champion. Like, I'm going to at least try to milk this for something. And uh, and wound up talking my way out of getting fired and uh, managed to keep an electricity account for another 10 years and obviously build a great relationship with Will and his family. Well, on another show, we'll we'll ring you about the great winter storm in Texas. Uh, oh. Hear about the fiascos of that one, but that's that's a different conversation. L- Scott, luckily, due to proper hedging, none of my customers were dinged, but that's another mathematical thing. Outstanding. <laughs> outstanding, Scott. Um, listen, tell us a little bit about um, the way that Will uses your material. Maybe we should go all the way back to what, what you're doing, and, and, it, and it is rooted in your playing day. So talk to us about your playing career and then how that translated into the materials and services that you've, you've, you're building out now. Yeah, so I wound up, uh, you know, I'm, I'm your typical six-foot-one Texas kid that played all sports growing up and settled on golf finally because I got clipped in football one time and realized that was not any fun and, and <laughs> specialized. But so I specialized in golf late. And so honestly, I, I really felt like I was always a much better player than I, my results were. And in hindsight, it really was just from a fundamental lack of understanding how to play. So went to Texas A&M because of transferring once. I wound up with a couple of math-related degrees in finance and economics and played professional golf for six years out of school and did fairly well. I mean, I won a couple times on every tour, but the ones you actually want to win on. So like I say, I eventually started an electricity company in 2002 when Texas deregulated. And I wound up meeting Chris Como, obviously Bryson's instructor, Tiger's former instructor. He and I met playing underground poker in Dallas in 2003. And it really is funny, the genesis, when people like, they start connecting all these dots of, of he and I being you know, good friends for almost 20 years now. Mm-hmm. And so I got to understanding just ball flight laws and just the game a little bit better. And so I got to where I was playing pretty good about six years later, I decided to enter Q school as a 35 year old amateur in 2008 and actually got through all four stages of Q school. Now, apparently entering Q school with a full-time job is a little bit harder than playing professional golf with a full-time job. So I just kind of screwed around for three years and went back to, to my electricity company in 2013. But that's right when Mark Brody's book, Every Shot Counts, was coming out. Mm-hmm. And he had already released the strokes gained putting statistics. I should say he, he and the tour. And I actually wrote a thread in an online poker forum, 2 Plus 2, in 2011, that the title of it was, Is Dry for Show, Putt for Doe Really True? And you can really start to see the genesis going back and rereading. It's pretty fun rereading all the threads from back then. <laughs> where I'm just starting to question everything and I'm really just applying poker and economic math mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the game of golf. And again, as a guy who really just never got as much out of it as I thought I could, I, I wound up playing just a lot of really good golf, even while not playing or practicing much. And it was just from this shift in strategy and, and as much as anything, a shift in psychology. And so I really decided that I could take all of Como's TrackMan shot patterns, which is just launch monitor data. Basically, you're creating a a footprint of a shot pattern. And I could take that in conjunction with at the time, all they had was strokes gained putting, but I took it in combination with that. And then I just out of my own, you know, intuition experience made up the baseline numbers for the rest of the short game stuff, which shockingly actually wound up being dead on. 
<laughs> and so then I, you know, in, in essence, optimized target selection. And I did that because one of the excerpts from Brody's book when it was coming out was that Tiger was number one because he hit it to 27 feet from 175 and Camillo was number 125 because he hit it to 30 feet. And I was like, man, that sounds crazy. But yeah. it made me realize that somebody could just be losing their card from just being a bad strategist. If that, and, mm-hmm. and Mark, I think would rewrite that at this point because it's, it's, it's a great soundbite, but it's not really what it is, but that's what triggered me to start thinking about it. So Let me stop you there and just ask for a clarification. Is your point that it's not that three feet matters that much, it's that it can't matter that much. And so it's not how far, it's where they are. Exactly, exactly. So proximity has a ton of flaws. Um, It's, it's, I always say it's a delicate combination of proximity, greens and regulation, penalty shot, short-sighted stuff. And again, that's what strokes gain does a great job of boiling down, you know, five or eight different categories into one distilled number, which, is a lot more useful than just greens and regulation. It's funny because actually Mark pointed out something one time. We were both speaking at a, at a conference together and, and I just realized somebody asked us, you know, why, what's the most correlated stat to, to scoring? And I said, you know, to track. And I was like, oh, greens and regulation for sure. And then Mark correctly, again, because you Ivy League guys are really smart putting it all together. It's like, but that actually makes it not very useful. If you tell me you hit, 60% of the greens making up a number, I can tell you your scoring average is probably 75. And so really greens and regulation, even though it's one of the most correlated to score, it really is basically like telling me your scoring average. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, again, really understanding how all of these different categories and everything, you know, interact with each other is really important. So going back to, to then Zalatoris in 2014, again, he's just a junior golfer at my home course. He's ranked 3,300 in the world at the time. But the guy's a stripe show. And I had always wondered, like, why doesn't this kid win anything? Like, he literally never won anything. Um, and, and in hindsight, I, you know, he's, he struggles with his putter. It's okay to say that. You know, he's, he's obviously got that under control. He's plus one and a half this weekend at the Masters. Um, but he basically was struggling with his putter so much, and he was such a great ball striker that he was trying to force birdies in all these situations and instead, he really needs to just be accepting that the birdies are going to come from variance within your shot pattern, variance within a putt or two falling. But you really can intentionally avoid mistakes far more than you can go out and intentionally make birdies. So after I had written this half a billion cells of Excel code that you guys could probably write in a, in a 10-word script these days, <laughs> I put a lot of work into this thing. And I got a cortisone shot the week before the Texas Amateur. And the guy actually paralyzed my right arm. It's, it is just so funny how these little forks in the road, I for sure would have, would not have caddied for Will if it weren't for the doctor paralyzing my right arm, which luckily wow. came back to life two days later. Wow. But he said, you need to take a few months off. So I called Will and I'm like, dude, I did a lot of math and I've got something pretty cool here. Like, it just let me caddy for you. If you do what I tell you to do, I guarantee you, you'll win. And he won by three. And I was like, wow, I didn't actually mean it, but <laughs> <laughs> wow. it was pretty cool. Cause I actually had sent Mark Brody an, an email, just picked his name right off of the, uh, off of Columbia's website, just saying, Hey, I created something pretty fun to, to follow along with, you know, let's see how this works. And then the kid goes and wins the Texas amateur, which again, he, he had never really done much, but um, it was just, you need breaks. You need things to break in your way. Even if you're right. And even if you got the goods and you have a real edge, you still need things to break in your way. And for you to go out and win first time out is a real nice break in, in your favor. And, you know, that's just, we need those things. We, we need to not only be right, but we need the breaks. Scott, let us understand before we go much further, 
like at its core, what does this, what does this instrument do? I might, my, my, let me give you my impression. You can re refine it for me, please. I think of it as it lays out your, your shot pattern. And by you're seeing the range of possibilities, it allows you to better understand what you need to aim for. And especially this idea of avoiding trouble. And you just said this beautiful thing. You said, you can't necessarily control whether a putt falls or not. You can do the best you can, but sometimes there's going to fall or not outside of your control. What you have much more control over is whether you get yourself in trouble. And so I'm assuming by taking that philosophy with the empirical pattern of where your shots go and everybody's got a different pattern, you can start making better decisions on the golf course. How much of what you're doing does that capture? And what do I get wrong? Well, I mean, it's, it's pretty spot on. I mean, again, this is where it, I don't really know how to phrase this correctly, but professional golfers, golfers are the worst at their sport of any professional athlete there is. Like if John McEnroe throws up a serve and he hits it and, he, and he's like, that was in 99% of the time, he's probably right because they really understand within a very small context of where they're trying to place the ball and golf shot patterns are simply massive in relation to how small your targets are. And so the traditional like playing lesson advice of you have to miss it in the right spots. Mm -hmm. it, it's really kind of a non sequitur. The right spot is almost always 99% of the time, somewhere towards the middle of the green or the opposite side of the green. And so it really, and this is where people don't understand what I teach. They're like, Oh, he's just the middle of the green guy. Like, no, <laughs> we, we're going to, we're going to get aggressive where you should be again from inside 130 or 40. And, and again, still depending on, what the adjacent hazard is. So 130 mm -hmm. yards to a pin like number 12 in the final round of Augusta every year, where it's four, four yards from going in the water, that's mm -hmm. different than 140 yards with the pin in the dead center of the green. So we've got these, these metrics that, that basically are the size of your shot pattern and then the adjacent hazard. And then the conditions, again, golf is the, the largest outdoor sport played with the ball in the air, the longest of any sport in the world. Even if if you, you had a magical golf ball shooting robot out there, you couldn't shoot 18 under if there was any wind whatsoever. And, and you really could see that in number 16 at TPC Scottsdale in the Phoenix Open a couple of years ago. They had the robot out there and it hit a hole in one and everyone's like, wow, check this out. One of my buddies that was there running the robot, he was the, the shot pattern on that robot from that distance in a controlled setting would normally be about two yards wide. Like it's really impressive. And he was like, man, it was blowing maybe two or five miles an hour downwind off the right. And the shot pattern became seven yards wide and 12 yards deep just <laughs> because of the subtle nuances in, in no wind, essentially. And that's really the main thing when you get great players, they want to push back. I'm, but I, I got to make birdie here. Xander Shoffley on 16 yesterday. I got to make birdie here. You probably need to make birdie, but you got 17 and 18 left also. What you really can't do is make triple. And it's, it's easy in hindsight to say that. And honestly, I wish I'd hit tweet on, but I didn't feel like getting caught up in, in, in it. But when Hideki was at the top of the hill on 15 yesterday, I'm like, rarely do I think you should be using game theory because golf is so hard to know the situation. It, it's the only sport in the world that's not played with a shared ball. There is no defense. There's not even a mutual clock. Everybody's game ends at different times. And so mm -hmm. Like in the, the second or third round, I can't remember which of the third, second round, I believe, when Will birdied the last three holes or three of the last four, it's easy to all of a sudden feel like you're five back. And it's like, yeah, but that guy's done. You've got opportunities left. And so really unplugging from that scoreboard watching mentality, which, again, my job is harder because guys like Tiger Woods say you have to miss it in the right spots. You have to know your position in the tournament. And it's like, yeah, but even 
it's we could sit down and debate pretty at a pretty high mathematical level whether Hideki should be going for that shot on 15 or not. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming four relatively smart math guys here. Like, I don't know that we would actually come up with a definitive answer. There's simply no way he's going to be able to do that in the middle of the fairway, you know, in mm-hmm. real time with the emotions of trying to win. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, what really using the data does is allow people to remove emotions. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, your question's a perfect tee up to what I was going to ask you. So how does somebody use your system in real time, given the number of variables, number one, the weather, uh, number two, the let's call it the contour of the hole. Three, um, I assume there's also variability. You would obviously, as a former professional, you would know. I would assume sometimes maybe my right to left is working better than my left to right. Like, how, do I even have just a dominant way? Like, even if I'm not even my consistent self. So, given all those variables, how can someone use the system in real time when they're actually playing? Well, one of the main things is, again, especially for the, the average listener to take away from watching you know, something like Zalatoris and Brooks Kepka and DJ and just, I mean, all the greatest players, they only hit the driver one direction. I mean, it has to be. And, and you get guys trying to bait DJ into saying all the time, and it's one of my main Twitter feuds I get into with people, you know, look, he, he, he drew that one. I'm like, no, he toe hooked that one. But you can literally even post DJ saying, I didn't try to hit a, a draw all last year and people will still push back. Same thing with Will. What's hard in golf is so shaping a fade is a left to right shot for a right-handed player. And with a three wood, you can just move the ball back in your stance. And that actually changes your path, which it's this face to path relationship that will create a draw. So Will with the same feeling swing can hit a draw with a three wood by putting it back in his stance. So on holes this week, like two, five, uh, 10, 13, where you, you just, you have to be drawing it. Well, he's going to draw back to three with there. And people don't realize like, that's crazy. He, he's not going to go through the fairway. That's not the problem. It's the shape that he has to try with the driver. You can't just move it back in your stance. It's already the least lofted club being swung the fastest with the longest shaft in the bag. It's just a really difficult club to work both ways. And then people will always throw Tiger up as a guy who works the ball both ways. I'm like, yeah, but he sucked at it with his driver. No offense, Tiger. I'm the biggest fan ever, but you weren't good at it. Um, when he was with Butch, he faded, predominantly faded the driver, and he did that really well. Some of the best driving in the, you know, 99 through 2002-ish season. And, and one thing that I'll say is, like, with Haney, he didn't drive it well, but at least when he missed it, it was going straight right. And in the past few years of trying to – we're not getting it too golf technically, but trying to zero out his path, meaning to where he can shape the ball both directions – He just has a double cross, which would mean you're trying to fade it and you hit a draw, which is now it's left, starting left and going left. Or Mm -hmm. the opposite would be if you double cross it off the right, it's starting right, going right and and fading like it's just off the planet. And those are the shots that you you simply can't afford them. I mean, we we have no we have no idea what you're talking about, Scott. Never experienced (laughs) that. Then I, then we have a lot of me. idea. We have a well, lot well, of idea what you're talking about. Well, what well, you just described is how I shoot. You're not. <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. That's kind of my technique. I, <laughs> you have to know what shape the ball is going to go. You can play almost anything as long as you know what way it's going. Scott, can you tell us? Do you have any examples of 
shots that Will made over the weekend or over the tournament that were, were different, you think, because of the decade system and the training that you've done? Or, or maybe it's another player that uses it. Or is there a kind of situation that happens at Augusta where you think they played a little bit differently because of this strategy? There's only one shot. I mean, again, like I create, you know, I, I worked with him, I mean, weekly for three or four years, you know, from his, his, from our winning the state am and us junior together all the way through his college career. But at this point, like he owns it. I'm just here as a buddy again. Now I'm just trying to talk him into buying a Porsche. That's my job. I'm just trying to, trying to be a mentor. Hey, you got a question or two. Uh, obviously I'm here for you. Um, but I'm really just trying to, to be a friend, but I will ask him, there's only one shot that I'm really curious about. And it's this tee shot on 12 yesterday. And it's so easy to cherry pick a shot. He hit a pretty bad shot short and left of the green. Like I've literally never seen anybody there. And it's such an anomaly shot in that situation. If it were short, right. I'd be like, yeah, he just didn't commit to it. But because just because the way shot patterns work, they tend to be long left to short, right. But to hit it short left is just a really strange shot there. And the reason I want to ask him about it is from the moment I can't even think of who he's playing with now, from the moment his ball hit the green Wills was in the air in 24 seconds. And I'm a big proponent of fast play. And I'm a big proponent of, dude, we've discussed this shot a million times. He knows exactly what the target is, dead center of the bunker, dead center of the green distance-wise. But I'm just curious, because he hit it so fast, mm-hmm. where his mind was at. And, and you know, it, it may be something like, no, just hit a bad shot. Okay, cool, let's just move on. But that's one that I really am curious, like, were you totally there because – Speed made quad. Everybody with the year Tiger uh, won five of the last six people hit it in the water. Like it's, it's such a mental shot. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And, and I just, the shot that he hit in the time that he hit it didn't make much sense to me. Right. What, what can you take us back to some of the early conversations with him when he, when you're first introducing these ideas to him, in what way are you changing his game a little or, or rather I should, you know, I, I don't mean to in any way say you're enforcing this, but like, in what way is he playing a little differently as a, as an, as a high level amateur because he's paying attention to this philosophy. So, so I told him that week of the Texas amateur, I'm like, dude, I need to play. I'm going to play you like a video game here. Like he is again, such a great ball striker. I'm going to play you like a video game here. But one of the main things that professionals get wrong is say a pin is four yards from the left edge They might aim it four or five yards out to the right, depending on the shot. But then most of them are kind of hoping that they pull it over by the flag. And it sounds like such a patently stupid thing to say, but I can't tell you, I'm not kidding, at least 30 PGA Tour players, when I've had this conversation with them, they just kind of laugh. They're like, dude, I do that seven times around. (laughs) And the, the key to that is, is when Como first started working with Tiger, I went down just to kind of watch the circus, um, and we're at the hero and they had tiger in the booth and they, they asked him, they said, tiger, you know, as you've gotten older, would you say you play more aggressively or more conservatively? And by that time I had already done this work where I went by hand through 20,000 of his shots in shot link to see, you know, it's just looking at the data and the proximity, like who knows exactly what's going on. But I went through by hand and said, okay, he was 174. The pin was five yards from the edge. There was a pin, three more yards. His ball finished 27 feet long left. I have absolutely no idea where he was aiming that one shot. But by the time you look at 20,000 of them, 
just a very clear pattern emerges. And I hate saying it, but it basically mirrored decade perfectly. He somehow intuitively played with essentially mathematically perfect strategy. And so going to Will then, I said, dude, I'm going to give you a target. And some of them are going to seem kind of ridiculous, but I really need you to try to put it there and then just trust that the variance within your shot pattern is going to result in a bunch of opportunities. And we're going to probably make a whole bunch of two putt pars and we're going to hopefully kill the par fives. And we're going to look at the end of this and we're going to shoot 10 under. It was literally the number I threw out for him and he shot 10 under. And it was just (laughs) crazy to watch because I'm like, I mean, we're literally on number six in the first round again, 2014 day, first day of decade, we're on number six. And if I had been playing, I would have literally thrown it in the trash can because of the target this math throughout him because like, this is so stupid. You can for sure be more aggressive than this, but you know, he just took the shot and put it on the green and two putted as we were walking off. It was, it was like 167 from the rough, which the scoring average on PGA tour would be like Mm 3.3. And and what I told him, you know, strokes to hold out from there. I'm like, you know, technically the math is if you can just get it near the green, it's going to be a fine shot. And I'm like, that's tongue in cheek. Cause I'm like, obviously you can do that. And he just takes his nine iron and he puts it on the green to 30 feet. And we two put him walking off. I'm like, this math is very straightforward. That picked up shots against the PGA tour. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I'm pretty good at math, but it doesn't take a wizard to be able to do 3.3 minus three is a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And it is about just patiently taking those holes off. But what gets so hard is you start watching the scoreboard. You start thinking, I've got to do this or that. And next thing you know, you're taking just a little bit too aggressive of a line like Xander again on 16. If he had the proper target, that ball, even though it was left of his target, that exact same shot would have been on the left side of his shot pattern. That thing probably is within three feet if he had the right target with the right patience and discipline. And what I try to tell people all the time, especially in match play, I mean, I've had five U.S. amateur champions, you know, in the last seven years that I've that I've worked with like at the junior and, and college level. Once you give these people just half of a brain because of the, the, the lack of a prefrontal cortex, like they just crush everyone. And um, hey, hold on, what are you, you're saying that without without this kind of system, they've got no governor on they've got no strategy they've got no practicality i suppose is when you put it and so they are they are especially in need of this kind of disciplining strategy is this what you're saying yeah i mean it's just it really again considering i i can say this because i wasn't trying to create a system where i would be talking with some guys from morton's one day i was just trying to win the us mid-am because i want to play in the masters myself that was literally the whole reason that i took on <laughs> this entire project because i'm like I feel like I'm pretty good at golf and this is a way to just get that last little hurdle maybe of just perfect Mm -hmm. strategy, mainly again, Mm -hmm. because I'm a lunatic, just playing with patience and discipline in some sort of a math basis. I know why I picked this target. I know the the whole reason for it. And again, just watching Will through like six or seven holes, I'm like, I feel like this is dumb. I feel like he can be more aggressive, but he's one under through 12. I feel like he can be more aggressive, but he's two under. He shoots, it was 67 or eight in the first round and is leading. I'm like, that was the easiest round of golf I've ever watched in my entire life. And at that point, wow. Will had never once beaten me in a round of golf. And so I'm like, if I had shot 67, I would be pretty happy. And like what I just witnessed, it wasn't anything interesting. Mm-hmm. And then he came back the next day and was super nervous. I mean, that's what's so funny about this is on the way home from the course after the first round, this is how beat down that kid was. He sent me a text that just said, dude, I'll never know how to thank you. That was amazing. You know, thank you so much for helping me. 
And I'm like, dude, just calm down, relax, go listen to this song time from the movie Inception that I tried to have him quasi meditating to. But here's a kid that was so beat down that he was that excited with just one round of golf. And within six weeks, he would be the reigning Texas amateur champion, the reigning transmiss champion and the reigning U S junior champion. Like, wow. and it's just a round. And, and what's so crazy is again, his scoring average was over part at that point. And when we finished that tournament, the Texas amateur, he shot all four rounds under par. And I'm like, you're not going to believe what I have to say to you. And he's like, lay it on me. I'm like, not only should your scoring average not be over par, I don't think you should ever shoot over par. You just hit it so good. It's unbelievable. I don't care that the putting is a struggle. And I'm not kidding. From that moment forward, he did not shoot over par for seven months until his first round ever on the PGA Tour at Riviera. And it's just, wow. It's just incredible. So uh, one of the cool things about this whole system is, you know, you're kind of defining, I guess, you know, at least, you know, an expectation kind of like what a, a perfect strategy should be kind of, you know, based on somebody's shot, shot charts and everything like that. Have you observed particular play? Like I, that also means you can define kind of a, a, an amount that you're deviating from the perfect strategy, which of course, you know, you could almost create a ranked list of golfers you could most help with, you know, kind of better strategy. Do you have that? I mean, you don't necessarily have to name names, but do you kind of have that list of like, oh, you know, these are the guys yeah. that most need to pick up the phone and call me. So again, keeping in mind that this was, I mean, again, just kind of for fun on the side of my electricity company that first year, it's the exact same year that Cole got hired by Tiger. You know, obviously I did some work for him on stats and stuff on that, but he had another player at the time that just plays way too aggressive, still plays way too aggressive. He's a great player. And that's when I realized that he, he, I went down and worked with this guy in San Antonio and nine holes in, he's just questioning everything I'm saying. And I'm all for being questioned, but at some point it's like, dude, I'm not guessing like (laughs) this is how it works. And he, he finished it up with just like, bro, I just can't look away from the pen. And I'm like, cool, get used to not winning. And he hasn't won yet. And it is just, it it made me realize at that moment, I'm like, you know, this is kind of a side gig. I've got on like, she's like, I don't really want to work with tour veterans. It's, it's hard to go to a 27 year old kid who's made 10 million and tell him you're doing it wrong. I can kind of only get in the way. And I made a decision right then. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to just really try to help college kids and I'm going to graduate out there onto the tour with them in four years. I don't really want to work with veterans. And I still to this day don't I've had, I've got a few Matthew Fitzpatrick and some other guys that I've spent a decent amount of time with, but Matthew went to Northwestern. He's a pretty smart dude. He's got a great background in math with Eduardo Molinari. Like just helping him is, is fun. And he's also open and receptive and he understands the ideas and, and variants. You just have to understand variants. The, the real key to all this is you can have a target out there on the range, but you don't know if the shot 10 yards left or 10 yards right is coming next. You have no idea or right at it. And that's the thing that you got to have a little bit of maturity and you've got to be willing to wait for. And that's, like I say, I, I did a few live seminars for colleges at Oklahoma State, Wake Forest, Duke, Clemson, the big schools, and then the NCAA when DeChambeau, SMU, when DeChambeau won the NCAAs in U.S. Amateur, Joe Buck was talking about me by name, again, six years ago on TV, and the NCAA called me and asked me, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm teaching strategy indoors, just like you told me you could, I could, and then they wound up banning me from giving my seminar in person, they, they called it an unfair competitive advantage. And it's just funny looking back at it all where it's like, 
Apparently it is because I was within a shot yesterday being able to tweet three of the last four major champions all attended the decade seminar in college with Morikawa and DeChambeau also having attended the seminar in college. And I just wow. didn't give it very many times. That's a, that's an alumni class of maybe 60 and <laughs> three of them have won. Well, Will hasn't won a major championship yet. Damn it. Close. Well, I wish, I wish we had as much success talking about variants. I mean, this is one of our favorite topics, but we're still figuring out how to convince people it's interesting and relevant. Nobody wants to hear about variants. So it's impressive that you're getting that far. Uh, tell me, is it hard mindset to get, you talk about this being a mindset and I could imagine, and this is relevant in so many places, but I can imagine a golfer is like, hold on, you want me to expect that it could, could be four yards right or four yards left? Aren't I supposed to be completely convinced that it's going to go exactly where I aim? Isn't this in conflict in some sense with being confident with what I'm going to do? I, I think that the, the old shooter's mindset of aim small, miss small, like I agree that's correct, but you have to then add the caveat in of aim small to hopefully miss small, but you're probably going to miss big. I mean, and that's just reality. I mean, I've got Aaron Wise from when, when he was the PGA Tour Rookie of the Year, a couple months after he had won the Byron Nelson, one of the best ball strikers, NCAA champion, one of the best ball strikers on the planet. And I was filming some content for, for my app. And we had him out on a driving range at TPC Summerlin, hitting the same shot at, over and over again, 27 irons in a row. And his shot pattern, again, reigning PGA Tour Rookie of the Year, his shot pattern was 34 yards wide, hitting the same shot over and over again off of a flat piece of grass. And I'm just like, if you think you're going to do better than that, you're kidding yourself. This is one of the best players on the planet. And you just, again, in, in, in all honesty, there was a 20 mile an hour wind off the left. We normalized that track man data to no wind. I do think it was messing with him a little bit. So don't go be at home thinking, well, 34 yards, I'm better than Aaron Wise. I do think that that was a tough 20 ball series for him. Yeah. But I'll also say he did it. It couldn't get smaller if we hit a million shots. It would just fill in the gaps. And it's funny because it, the, the shot pattern actually looks like a donut. If you're looking at it, you know, from, from above, the only place he didn't hit it was where he was aiming in those 20 shots. It's literally like a 15 foot void in the center of that shot pattern. And it's just comical. Um, you know, again, as a guy who I won 10 times playing professionally, it's just comical how you just feel like you can go out and do anything and you really can't do anything at all. <laughs> so, so, Scott, maybe my last summary question would be for me. If you just said to a player, draw a 10-yard circle around where you're aiming, the ball could go anywhere in that circle, recognizing some could be in the water, some could be in the bunker, some could be in an unplayable lie. Where would you want that 10-yard circle to be? Is that a summary of the way it is? Because you're, it's not going to be more precise than anybody is. In other words, no one is more precise than a 10-yard circle. Therefore, when you were talking about um, Chauffle yesterday, he would never have aimed on that track if you knew it was a 10-yard circle. You just wouldn't. You just could never. Is that, the, is that a good summary of the way to perceive it? That's where the, when I start saying the psychology and the mindset of it sets in and again, expectation management. I mean, it really is just about, you know, I mean, again, yes, you have to have control of your ball, but no matter how, what your handicap is, just understanding these realities, I mean, will make you better simply overnight. And it's funny because I, I named it decade. Will sent me a text after he won the Texas amateur that said, dude, thank you. You've given me 25 years of experience in five days. And it made me just think like, we really did just take a decade off this kid's learning curve. And then I was like, no, oh, that's interesting. 
And then when he won the U.S. Junior at that point, and again, it was mainly because I'm listening to some of our playing partners talking with their caddies. And I'm just like, and Will had even gotten to the point, very clear. Will's a really smart kid, obviously, golf I choose cues off the cart. At the Texas Amateur, he was oblivious to the player caddy conversations around us. And then the U.S. Junior, it was fun to just even watch him just kind of look at me and just kind of give it, well, that's too aggressive of a target. Or what is he trying to do? He's trying to do all these hooks and fades and highs and lows, just all, you know, again, from our playing partners. And that's one of the harder things I had to get Will to understand is you've got this paradox of choice in golf. You've got so many shots, dude. You don't need to hit them all the time. It's just sometimes a lot of stock stuff and, and wait the variance out. And yeah, it really is just understanding that. But but the, the only caveat that I'll say to what your question is, is it really depends on the length of the shot. So sure. Aaron Wise, I then had him hit 20 uh, sand wedges in a row for 110 yards. His shot pattern was seven yards wide, and but but it was 14 yards deep. So you do have a, a variance both direction and distance wise and really understanding just that basic reality is really what allows you to tie it all together. Great. Scott, we could talk with you about this stuff. All day. It's, so, it's so much fun. <laughs> Wish so you the best with the work. Uh, exciting to hear about it. I love that it is being adopted more widely and we're seeing the consequences on the tour, not just on the tour at the biggest moments on the tour. So congratulations on that. Wish you the best with it going forward. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, guys. Always, uh, it really is fun nerding out on this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Fawcett, founder and creator of the Decade Playing System for Golf. That has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball, two hours on Sports Analytics. We do it every week right here for the whole team. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner wasn't able to join in this last quarter, but he'll be back, of course, for the boss man, Matty Datz, for the associate boss man, Deion Simpkins. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, Enjoy your sports.